Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the composers, the production designers, the costumers, uh, the actors, the sound mixers, the film editors, you name it, we talk to them. Uh, and past few weeks, you know, we've been in slam dance film festival mode. Uh, started February the 12th, runs through the 25th. Two weeks ago, we had wonderful filmmakers from Baltimore talking about their documentary, Anatomy of Wings, uh, that started as an after school program. Last week, we were speaking with uh, directors and investigative reporter Stephen Janis about another Baltimore uh, story with the friendliest town. This week, we're slowly moving west. This week, we're going to be talking with Jason uh, Polavoy about his new documentary, A Tiny Ripple of Hope, that focuses on the story of Jamal Cole in Chicago. Um, and it is also, it's at Slam Dance. And again, Slam Dance Films playing through the 25th, uh, the Slam Dance Film Festival. And for $10, $10 is all it's going to cost you to buy an access pass for Slam Dance Film Festival, which is all done virtually this year. Uh, and you can see every film in the festival. So that's a deal at half the price. It's cheaper than anything digitally or on your VOD at home. Uh, and there's some really good films at Slamdance this year. And we're going to be talking about another of them at the midpoint of the show today when Jason joins us live. Before then, though, I promised you last week we were going to talk about Willie's Wonderland and talk about Willie's We Are. Uh, Nick Cage fans rejoice. This is a Nick Cage that we haven't seen in so long. And I am, in case none of you know, none of you have read any of my, any of my reviews or interviews for the past 35 years, I am a huge Nick Cage fan. Sometimes he has hits, sometimes he has misses, but he is always entertaining in some way, shape, form, or manner of respect of cinema. Uh, Obviously, most people love him in Con Air. I'm in the minority here with A Sorcerer's Apprentice. I love that film. I know most of you didn't, but I love it. Uh, one of my favorite Nick Cage films has been Werner Herzog's Bad Lieutenant, Ports of Call, uh, which is so much fun. And, be and, of course, with Werner at the helm, you never know what's going to happen. And something unusual always does within the film. And you put throw Nick Cage in there, you're guaranteed something incredible is going to happen. And it does in that film. And it's one of his best, one of Cage's best dramatic performances. But now Nick is, and we've seen a ton, a string of all these small little indies the past few years. Uh, those get in, get out, do it, get it done, focus and move on to the next one uh, from Cage. But now we've got Willie's Wonderland. And Nick Cage is also a producer on this film, folks. Written by Geo Parsons. This is his first screenplay to actually be made into a film. And directed by Kevin Lewis. Um, Kevin has been in filmmaking for a number of years. Uh, working on various projects. Some come to fruition, some do not. As everybody knows, you might get optioned, you might get on spec, you know, write a script, you uh, come under contract for X time, financing doesn't come into play, but at least you're working and you keep working and you're supporting your family. Um, and then you get a film like Willie's Wonderland. And this film is beyond, beyond fun. Where's my notes? I have notes before we start uh, with my exclusive interview with Kevin Lewis. Um, 
Nick Cage plays an unnamed character just known as the janitor. He gets a flat tire in this podunk town of nothingness, gets towed. It's going to take overnight to get new tires, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we don't take credit cards. We only take cash. We don't, our, oh, no ATM machines. ATMs don't work. We only take cash. No cash, no ATM. Well, you're going to have to work it off. Great place to find some overnight work. Willie's Wonderland. Think of a dark and gloomy and scary as hell Chuck E. Cheese. And for anybody that's been in Chuck E. Cheese, that can get scary in and of itself. Um, Willie's Wonderland is the place. And the janitor, as he is known, gets hired. And if he cleans up for the place for the night, scrubs it so it's all spick and span in the morning, that'll take care of whatever he's going to owe the mechanic for fixing his car. Night starts. And so do strange things in Willie's Wonderland. Um, animatronic, really strange-looking animatronic animals. Willie is a weasel, which, as, as you will see when you see the film, it fits beautifully um, and the animatronics come to life every room within Willie's Wonderland has a different theme everything has its own production design set design color scheme uh, and through it all Nick Cage never utters a word but what his character the janitor does is chug and he's so obsessed and he is so addicted to this punch pop uh, that it's like Red Bull personified. He sets his watch to make sure he gets his fix of it. And at one point in the film, he is so hyper on his punch pop that he's playing with a pinball machine and goes into the most outrageous, insane dance routine. You've, I think it could rival John Travolta. In, in Kill Bill. So the whole film is just fun. There's underlying plot twist happening here. Uh, third act, we find out the history behind Willie's and the truth of it. It's amazing. But before the film got released, an even bigger story happened with Willie's Wonderland, and that involves Kevin Lewis, the director. Just three weeks before the film's release, three weeks before I spoke with him last week, he was in intensive care in the hospital for COVID. Uh, he spent several weeks in the hospital. He almost didn't make it. But, and we spoke at great length. This is not included in today's interview. Um, that will be available elsewhere uh, when I put it together in a tasteful fashion. Uh, and really cull it down for you. Um, listening to Kevin talk about the experience of suddenly having COVID. He's on the top of the world. His film is done. His film is ready to get out into the world. And he is felled by COVID-19. Um, this has given him a whole new appreciation and exuberation and energy uh, for not only life and his craft, but for this film of Willie's Wonderland, which is now out and available everywhere, digitally, VOD, in some theaters where theaters are open, unlike Los Angeles, where we still have no theaters. Um, the film is insane. It is wild. It is wonderful. It is off the hook. The cinematography is outstanding. Dave Newbert is the cinematographer. Mary Coffey does the production design. Big shout out for Ken Hall, who designed the animal suits for the animatronics. Uh, it's just everything about it. And then Ryan Liebert's editing is just off the charts. The pacing, it's, it's like you are on the janitor's punch pop. You've, you're drinking a case of it along with him during the course of this film. Um, it is not to be missed and if you're a Nick Cage fan even more so it is you will have the ride of your life the time of your life and it really puts life in perspective and will pick you up from whatever ails you so without any further ado take a listen to 
my exclusive with director Kevin Lewis talking about Willie's Wonderland. Willie's is beyond wonderful. I am oh, so in love Amy's with this so film. Happy. Kevin, oh, thank you. the minute I know it happened, we had like a limited 24, 48 hour window to screen it last week when I when they sent me the link. And I'm like, oh, my God, I got to make room for this. Because number one is Nick. And I'll see Nick in anything and everything. Always oh, yeah. have since the beginning, oh, yeah. very beginning of his career. Yep. Oh. I had to go back in and watch it a second time. This is one of the most fun, wildest rides. I fell in love with this, with the, just the trailer when it first came out. Dave Newbert, cinematography, the dutching, the dutching yeah. and the yeah. super saturation here is yeah. so incredible. And then you throw in Emoy's, uh, the score yeah. and some yeah. needle wow. drops. Yeah. And it this is the wildest ride you will ever go on. There is no way you cannot have fun watching this. And here it is, irreverent humor. Yeah. Very irreverent humor. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and then watching the film, the fact that Nick doesn't say a word. And he is one of the most expressive actors around. And yeah. I got to tell you, as we're watching him chug, punch pop, a fistful yeah. of caffeine to your kisser, and then he carries it. He always has his supply. So that's his addiction. Yeah. Is And I'm going, good God, this is stronger than Red Bull. How much caffeine is in there? <laughs> because you, you were so detailed. And Dave brought the camera in so tight on him as he drinks this stuff. You yep. see the beads of sweat. Yep. And then we, we get to that really cool pinball machine scene where he totally freaks out and is dancing. And you're just busting a gut. You cannot help it. This no. is Willie's Wonderland is the cure for whatever ails you. I got to tell you, Kevin. Oh, Deb, that makes me so happy. This I'm so happy to hear that. This Great. is, and you go beyond Nick, the story itself, Geo Parsons' yeah. story. Yeah. It is so unique. How did you go about, and a lot of this falls on your production designer, on Molly Coffee, yeah. yep. in designing Willie's Wonderland itself, each one of these rooms, and the, the animatronic cr animals that are, I know they're actually, you know, people in, in the suits because you just can't afford the animatronics, but you also can't sure. afford multiple suits, which right. which creates an issue for you in terms of shooting chronologically versus making sure that nothing gets dirty, but given what's happening and with uh, with oil, mechanical mechanics oil all over the place, stuff's going to get dirty, so you got to shoot chronologically. You set yourself up for so many challenges here. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I did a 70-page uh, shot list. I shot wow. listed the whole movie, front and back, working with Dave on it. And, uh, you know, uh, I knew we had to be prepared. I had 20 days to shoot. So I was like, we, we and, and this isn't a movie you just go in and go, hey, it's Lars von Trier. Like, what are we feeling? We're going to just have to move the camera. No, I needed to be very precise, mm -hmm. especially when Nick wasn't speaking because uh, you have to do it very visually and entertaining. And it's so great that you picked up on all that stuff because that was very well-intentioned. Well, that's where Dave's framing and the, uh -huh. the ECUs are so yeah. important in this film. Oh, definitely. And, and, and so um, that going in, I had that shot list. And I showed it to Nick. I mean, he's a partner on this movie. I showed it you know, to the crew. So everybody was on the same page. Um, so we had everything kind of prepped. Like I had fridge cam where, so it was like, okay, so we got to cut the back of the fridge and put the camera in. I had the sink cam kind of the same way. We had to move the walls, you know. What's interesting is the last scene, the fight, it was going to be rain. And um, I had like seven to eight pages that day. I had the whole finale. And, um, and as cool, I wanted an element, you know, but as cool as that would be, it was like, God, you know, um, working in the water, everything. I, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. And so came up with the birthday button and came up with the uh, multicolor, technicolor confetti. Because mm -hmm. like, well, that's what would happen at a birthday, you know. And uh, so that was kind of a last minute thing. But uh, most everything was really planned. 
I'd say at that movie, 85 to 90 percent uh, of that film I got, and it was shot listed. Wow. Did you storyboard also? Because I'm thinking, yes. especially with all of the animatronic battles. Yes. Yeah. So I, I did storyboard, um, and uh, and uh, uh, Jared Boyce was the storyboard artist, fantastic artist. And uh, so, yes, I did storyboard as well. So I had that. Um, the shot list was the Willie's Bible, though. That was the one that uh, I, I used mostly, but I did, I did, I did use the boards as well, and they, they were from the shot list. Um, so then the thing was, how do we pull off the creatures? I didn't want them, you know, this is a tightrope movie, Deb. You yeah. know, this movie could have gone either way. It could have been a really bad movie, you know, and I know people were nervous about that uh, and the productions for the producers and things like that, and they even said it, and I agreed. And so I was like, well, how are we going to pull off Willie? and the mm -hmm. gang, you know, and so the idea of not shooting them in full shots, you know, shooting up Dutch, was mm -hmm. funny, we would do a Dutch angle, and it'd be like, hey, is this too much? And I'd be like, it's Nick Cage versus a, an animatronic yeah, weasel, it's... nothing is too much, you know, um, and so we just, I went all balls out, it's funny, because I read some reviews, like, it could have gone weirder, and, you know, there were some things I wanted to do, but it's like in 20 days, man, you're lucky you get your your whole movie done, you know. Mm -hmm. And I shot the cut, so I knew how it was going to edit. So, like you say, those close-ups and things like that. That was all planned because I was like, I don't have. This is a cool thing. I, I told Nick, you know, I was like, I, Nick, I, I only have two to three takes. I, I, that's all I have. And he's like, Well, Kev, I, I like to get it in one. Yeah, he. Um, I have to tell you about Nick. He is just. Well, we, we know he's an incredible, one of the best actors in the world. Yep. Uh, he was an incredible partner to do this film with and, um, and, a, and an amazing human being. When you meet him and stuff, you just know he's the real deal. He's genuine. He's just a kind soul. We didn't have one disagreement, a creative disagreement on this film. We saw eye to eye the whole way through. And he worked so hard with stunts. And everything and every night we would talk yeah you know and i would say oh i want this to be iconic i i want you know people to be dressing up as a janitor for halloween and how can we do this we get the <laughs> dutch tape you know the duct tape and all that and it's like he's just he was just such an incredible person to make a movie with he really spoiled me you know um just what a great man well, I mean, he just shines in this film. And yeah. here again, it goes back to what you and Dave put together. I've got to yeah. ask you, color is so important in this film. Yeah. Not just the degree of saturation that we have, but the use of color on the whole. What war And that follows through with the lighting, with the strobe lights, with yeah. the different lighting in each of the rooms. The yeah. garden room is gorgeous. That yeah. is so beautiful with the yeah. fairy lights and the green, oh. and it belies the terror that <laughs> it's yeah. about to unfold. Yeah. But the lighting is so critical, and the color of the lighting. I'm curious what you and Dave, what your thoughts were on that. Well, we wanted to make it every room look different and unique. Mm -hmm. Same thing as, like, the fight, different and unique. And so um, we kind of drew up a, uh, when we were doing a shot list, you know, we drew up a, uh, a map, a board of, of, how, of the sets of what they should, and then we got Molly involved. And I'll tell you, Molly was just incredible. And she was coming at me with 100 miles an hour with all these different great ideas and stuff. And her and her team, uh, uh, Lauren and Ren, they're just great. And so <clears throat> we just started working all well together, and we were telling them, this is what we're going to do it this way. You know, I, I, I wanted to, it's funny, you know, I pitched one of the producers before we started shooting. I was like, I want the ending to be Die Hard. And he freaked out. You know, I, I actually interned for John McTiernan when I was in college. Mm -hmm. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. And anyway, he was, and they were freaking out. They're like, oh my God, Kevin, you, you know, he's just going to, this movie's going to go over budget. And da, da 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 And I realized, Deb, that like in this industry, it's like, you have to be so careful, especially with producers and money people. Yep. What you say, you know, because they don't get it, you know. And it's like I wasn't saying Die Hard with crashing a helicopter and Bruce Willis jumping out of a window and all that. What I was saying was the look of Die Hard with the lens flares, right? And the reds, the lights of the reds when he's going at the, at the finale and so like that. 
So I was like, that's what I wanted. But I just, Brentford's a diehard. I should have just said lens flares and whatever. But I just thought they'd be bored about that, you know. But uh, Dave and I love lens flares. And all those are organic. We would actually do, so we came up with, uh, we called it a rage cage. Uh, but a lot of people love to say cage rage, which is great. <laughs> and it, it's this, uh, every time he, I call it the Popeye moment. Because I, I originally wanted, like, when he downs the punch pop, I would love to, like, zoom into his heart. Yeah. And see the punch pop go and whatever. You know, but then, of course, you know, you have 20 days. So it's like, okay, that's not going to happen. So um, we did Rage Cage. And so we shot this movie, the, the beat downs of the creatures. We had a camera, and it was, uh, like, 18 frames per second. And we were shaking it. And then we were taking uh, flashlights and, and, and throwing them into the lens. You wow. Know, so we get that funky lens, sci-fi kind of look. Just want to make it look different, you know? And um, I love Darren Aronofsky. He's one of my favorite filmmakers, too. And there's that scene in Requiem for a Dream, and I know that movie's so hard to watch, but uh, the technique is just brilliant. And there's that scene, I think, in Marlon Wayans when he's uh, in the jail cell and he's screaming. Mm -hmm. and the, the, the image starts shaking. And then it looks like it's coming out, the cellular is coming out of the projector. It's like, that's what I wanted for, uh, uh, for him, for the beatdown. And so we did Rage Cage. So we did that, and we only had one suit. So once that suit was done, man. It, it was, was done. Over, and Nick beat the hell out of all of them. Um, so, uh, but I wanted to design each fight. Charlie Paris was stunt coordinator. And I just wanted to design each fight a little different. You know, because I didn't want to be like, oh, the monotony, the same fight, the same thing. You know, so trying to inject a little origin, you know, originality on the same token. Again, 20 days. You don't have a lot of time, you know. So I really felt that we took our weaknesses and we turned them into strengths. That was my thing. Because mm -hmm. I've done, done like seven movies before. So I've done low-budget movies. I know what it takes. And, uh, and so I was like, okay, to the crew... I was like, okay, look, we don't have this. We don't have that. That's fine. This is what we're going to do, you know? I mean, I don't care if we bring a shopping cart in. We'll put the camera on a shopping cart. Right. You know, I mean, I, you know, Deb, you know, five days before shooting, I didn't have a dolly. Oh, my God. Uh, uh. I didn't have a dolly. I didn't have even memory cards. That's how tight this budget was. And so I was like, okay, well, we're going to figure this out. Luckily, we did. The producers were great. Got a dollar. We got, we got that fixed. But, you know, you're, every day is a hurdle mm -hmm. running into things. Um, but, man, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm so pleased because, because of the prep, because of the nonstop thinking about this movie, even when we're trying to set up with financing. It's a funny story. I, I, uh, I had a bin, and uh, when the movie looked like it wasn't going to go, I put it in a bin. I put it up in my attic. It was like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, just shelved it. I'm a big, I'm a big uh, pop culture collector, toy collector. I got uh -huh. my Star Wars figs and my comics and all that stuff. I just shoved it in there. And then uh, when we finally got the movie set up, I was pulling it out. And my wife is going, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> she, she knows how obsessed I get, you know, once I start working on a movie. I go, yep, it's happening. It's going. <laughs> you know? And so I pulled it out. I, I pulled out all my movies. And it was kind of cool, too. We did a trailer uh, for AFM. And so I had to take a lot of footage from other movies. We did, like, a mock trailer. And it was really hard because, you know, release is kind of an original movie. There's, There's not a lot of movies like nothing it. Nothing so, else looks like this. Yeah. So trying to find the animatronics and this and that. So, I, you know, I borrowed from, I borrowed from, you know, from Chucky to Banana Splits to uh, Magic back in the 80s. Oh, my God, the Anne-Margaret movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but we cut this cool little <clears throat> teaser with Nick, a lot, of sh a lot of stuff from Drive Angry and Mandy and stuff. And uh, uh, we, we showed it at AFM, and, and, and it went over like gangbusters. And so that was, that was pretty cool. So that was one part of trying to put the financing together um, is, is, is doing that, you know. But... Uh, I, I wanted this movie to be original and look different, you know, that you haven't seen something like it, you know, and because, you know, we are a low budget, and how do you cut through all the content that comes out? Mm -hmm. There's so much movies coming out, and that was my thing, was like, how are we going to be special? And we got Nick, so we're already special in my book. But yep. It's like, how do we cut through the content, you know, and so, and I, I shot this movie, man, like it was my last movie, 
and being through what I've been through, it could have been. You never know. So, you never know. You know, I'm, so, I'm curious, Kevin, for because you were in post-production on this yeah. during COVID. Yeah. How, what did that, how challenging was that from the editing perspective and also Emoy scoring? It was very challenging. Um, so we wrap February 28th. I come back March 1st. I start cutting that week. I don't take a break. Mm-hmm. So I go up to L.A. with my editor, Ryan Lieber, who did a fantastic job. And uh, uh, he, he, we start cutting. And we're at the studio. And we're there for like two, three weeks. And then the lockdown comes to L.A. And it's like we can't even be with each other. It was just so sad because... As it was this company, and they would be bringing in the people that was working there, and they were letting us go. And you just knew the writing was on the wall. And so they said, you know what, you can't be here anymore. It was the lockdown. So came back to uh, my place in Orange County. Ryan was in L.A. Uh, one producer was in L.A., another was in New York, and another one was in um, uh, Michigan. <clears throat> and so I'm working on a director's cut, and then we're working on the other cuts, and we're just going back and forth. And then Emwa, he's doing his music. The cool thing about Emwa is he did the birthday song before we even started shooting. That birthday so, song is creepy. Isn't it great? It's great, it's great, but it is creepy. Yeah, and so so what was cool is he took the birthday song and put it on um, uh, a Chuck E. Cheese commercial. Mm-hmm. And uh, I showed it to Nick when I first met him in the wardrobe, <laughs> and he just loved it. And so we would play the birthday song when we would shoot some of the animatronics. And um, it was the coolest thing because all the crew would be like, oh, my God, I can't get that song out of my head. The next day, they'd be like, I was dreaming that birthday song. <laughs> I knew we had a hit with that birthday song. I just knew it. And um, so it was really cool to have that. And talking to him... I wanted that Chuck E. Cheese showbiz pizza theme, but then I wanted to go dark. Yeah. I wanted to twist and turn through the movie, and that's what we did. And so, um, so he did that birthday song, like I say, when before you know, sh- you know, shooting the movie on pre-production. You know, um, so it was great to have on set. So then, <clears throat> you go back to Pose. He's working on his music. We're all working on the cut. Everybody's emailing, you know, now and saying what they like and what they don't and everything and like i said i shot to cut this movie so there was not a lot of footage that you could play around with and um uh, and so that was a really cool thing because i knew it's like i don't want this movie to be what it's not and mm-hmm. this this is it this is very precise so that was really cool um and then we just fine-tuned it um but it was all remote and even uh my my sound designer paul i was looking so much so forward to going to uh, Sony and, and, and to mix the movie there uh, it was just a dream of mine that's where Paul works and uh, we couldn't do it and so he did it remotely and then he would send send stuff and then you know we'd look at it and I'd give notes and things like that and that's kind of how it went wow. it was all remote even the ADR was on an iPhone like the ADR for the uh, creatures which blew me away it just showed me how technology how far we are and um Again, I was looking forward to having meeting all the actors and having them come into ADR and so it, no, it was all remote, all on an iPhone, and um, and that's how the movie was put together remotely. Wow. And it was tough. That's what we did. We had visual effects coming, and sometimes you have to download a software to see them. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard that you sometimes you know it would work, sometimes it wouldn't, and it was just like uh, it, it was just it was crazy how to. It's, and, you know, I missed, I missed being in the room. Yeah. I missed being in the room with everybody and talking about stuff and everything. And it was like, it was all through emails, you know, and uh, you it lose, was like, it's you, not the way to put a movie together, no. but we did it. You, you lose know? the spontaneity, that collaborative yeah. spontaneity when everybody's yeah. in the room and you have that electricity flowing. Yeah. You don't yeah. have that emailing back and forth. No. Everyone's on their own island. Yes. You know, and it, it sometimes it sometimes creates, uh, you know, arguments that doesn't need to be, you know, but you read an email wrong or something, you mm-hmm. know, it's just weird, you know, but uh, we did it. 
we I think we 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 pulled it off. Wow. You know. Oh, you yeah. you definitely did. You know, I would be remiss not to ask you about bringing in Beth Grant. Beth Grant as Sheriff Lund is hilarious by the time we get to that third act and we really find out the real story of Willie. Yeah. Um she is she's a hoot and a holler. She is. Uh, working with her, with her was a dream. She was so great. She she was a, she was an actress that you shoot and you shoot and you shoot and she, she's just getting started. And every take was just built on the next. You could sit there and do thirty takes, you know, for her. Uh, and she's just an engine that never stopped stopped going. And then you don't know which one you want. Because they're all good. I, I know. She's so good. And she brought so much to this movie. And she's such a sweet, kind person mm-hmm. as well. And you know what's cool? She worked with Nick, I think, on Matchstick Men. Yeah. They knew each other. Um, but uh, she's just a class act through and through. Well, every, I just love everything about this film, Kevin. Everything oh, about it. how you make my day. You it, really do. Because, you know, sometimes you see these critics... You know, and they just rip you to shreds. And you, sometimes you read the writing and it's like, well, you know, I don't think you like this movie in the first place, the way you're writing. Uh, I don't think this movie is even for you. It's called Willie's Wonderland, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, being what I've been through with COVID and all that, it's like, hey, I don't care. I'm here if I'm alive with my kids and my wife, you know? And then I, then I read the audience reviews that love it. And, you know, you make movies and, of course, you want everyone to love it. And they're not. It's just impossible. There's people who don't like uh, Lawrence of Arabia or 2001 or Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, you know, that's fine. Uh, and I'm not comparing this to that, by the way. I'm just saying that, you know, there's, you're not going to make everyone love it. But yeah. the people who do, people like you, you give me so much. You know, it's so hard to make films. You give a piece of your soul yep. to every movie you do. And, 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 and to get these things set up, and financed and, and, and put together and the actor says yes or no and all that stuff. And yes, it's fun, but it's also heartbreaking. And I've had my share of heartbreaks through the years. I've been so close to the, to the brass ring. And so um, anyways, just have willies to work so hard on this. I want to make fun movies with dealing with COVID and this political landscape. It's time just to make fun movies. And so I want to make genre fun movies. So I'm working on a couple and I'm bringing back the team of Willie's hopefully. So. And that was just a portion of my hour plus interview with Kevin Lewis. Uh, And this is the portion talking about Willie's wonderland starring Nick Cage. Uh, You'll have a great time watching this film. What can I say? And really, for the, all the filmmakers out there, the wannabe filmmakers, there is some, the production values here are exceedingly good. Uh, and especially what Dave Newbert does with the camera. Some of the Dutch dangles that he has, I see 1,100, 1,200 films every year. I have not seen the kind of frenzied and energetic and unique angles that Dave has created and brings to the fore with Willie's Wonderland. There is just, for filmmakers, it's a great film to watch just from that standpoint to see what is done with Ryan Liebert's editing in terms of pacing and with Dave Newbert's cinematography and then all the cool things that you heard Kevin talk about, creating a fridge cam taking off the back of a refrigerator and putting a camera back there so we're looking at the janitor's face as he continually reaches in for his uh, hyped-up punch pop. Um, Just so well done. And and Molly Coffey's production design and color. There is so much that is defined in this film metaphorically and emotionally, not to mention energetically by the production design and the color, which is then complemented by Dave's work and then Ryan's work. This is truly an incredible collaborative film, and you see that with every element on the screen. Um, 
I love it. I love it. See it, see it, see it. And I truly do hope that Kevin, that we get a sequel for Willie's. Uh, but whatever Kevin makes, I'll be there. And now we're really switching gears here. We're going into, in, into the serious subject matter of A Tiny Ripple of Hope. And we are welcoming the director and producer, Jason Polavoy. Is that how, is that, did I say it right, Jason? Uh, you were you were close. It's Polavoy. Polavoy. Okay. I just had the accent on the wrong syllable. How are <laughs> you? How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm cold. I'm in Chicago. Um, but uh, but other than that, You're I'm cold. doing well. <laughs> the top of the show, I was talking about the past two weeks. Uh, we've been looking at some films that were happening in Baltimore, in the Baltimore area. Uh, events, yeah. documentaries and events there. One of which is also... Anatomy of Wings is also at Slam Dance yeah. together with a tiny ripple of hope. I'm just moving across the country here. We're going east to west. Um, <laughs> now we're stopping in Chicago. And I didn't know what to expect with a tiny ripple of hope. And I have to tell you, Jason, I am so impressed. I am so impressed not only with the film, but with your subject matter with Jamal and with the M3, my block, my hood, my my city organization and campaign that he has started. Wow. You talk about a man who is really trying to buck the system. And instead of showcasing rioting and how this is how things get changed and this is what you do and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Everything about this documentary shows the positivity and the positive actions that are taken and viewpoints and outlooks to elevate and enlighten and educate. Um, just And so positively done. And it is so, it it's so refreshing in, in this climate. I can't, I can't commend you enough, Jason. Well, well, thank you. I mean, it was, it was very important to us to make, you know, a, a positive depiction of Chicago. Um, and, you know, I think Chicago in the, in the media at large gets kind of a bum rap mm-hmm. and it's not, not necessarily deserved in a lot of ways. And so, you know, Jamal's um, kind of mantra is what's something simple I can do that will make a positive difference in my neighborhood. And, you know, that's what we see him doing at uh, at the expense of you know of many of the things in his own life, yeah. um, and that's kind of for me the the true sign of of altruism. I mean, you know, writing a check, making a donation is great when you can do it, um, but Jamal is truly selfless. Yeah, and and we see that through the entire documentary uh, as we go on this journey. Now, you really hone this in to basically a year. A year mm-hmm. of time. So I'm curious, when did you first learn about Jamal and M3 and meet him and then get the idea to, this deserves a documentary? It was back in about 2015, I read a local news story here in Chicago about uh, what Jamal was doing and specifically about funding his program with hoodie and t-shirt sales. Um, and I thought it was great. And I thought the branding was great. And I thought his message was great. So I bought a t-shirt. And at the same time, I was producing a TV show here in Chicago. And that, so I booked Jamal and some of the teens in his program to be featured on the show. And uh, we got to talking afterwards. And he said that he wanted some help because he wanted to host a travel show. And I said, you don't want to host a travel show. Uh, you're already the busiest person I've ever met. You don't, I, I promise you, you don't have the capacity to do that as well. <laughs> and um, so I pitched to him the idea of following him around with cameras and, and some of the students in his program with cameras. And, you know, those discussions happened in 2016. And um, we began filming in 2017. Uh, we filmed about 150 hours of footage. And like you said, we, we decided to focus the story on about a year in his life um, because it was particularly tumultuous and formative. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we were shooting for about three years. Wow. Wow. 
And that's not bad to just have to call through about 150 hours of film. <laughs> well, luckily we had a great editor, Derek Monks, um, and, uh, and, and he suffered greatly for, for his art in this one. <laughs> oh, my God. How did you decide on You're following around for three years or so. How did you... When did you realize that this 2018 year was the year you wanted to focus in on? There were a couple of things that signaled it. You know, initially we thought we were making a film about the teenagers in Jamal's program. Mm -hmm. And Jamal was kind of a supporting character. And, um, you know, the, the, the kids are great. Um, they're smart and they're kind and, uh, you know, all that good stuff. But they are... Um, teenagers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we'd be filming with them and they'd say, I got into five colleges. And I would say, well, why didn't you call me so we could film you opening your college acceptance letters? Um, so we knew that, you know, our story wasn't necessarily going to revolve around the teens in, in the way that we initially thought. And right about at that time is when I found out the situation with Jamal um, and uh his home going into foreclosure. Mm -hmm. So it kind of all came together that like, this is the moment to pivot the focus of the documentary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we certainly considered expanding the world, especially with everything that happened last year, yeah. um, because Jamal really was a leader in Chicago's, you know, both Chicago's COVID response and its response to the murder of George Floyd. So we considered making, you know, making this longer, but ultimately we felt like what happened to Jamal in that one year um, was kind of universal. It was always going to feel timely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think even more so now as, you know, more people, everybody's talking about with COVID relief, with pandemic relief, apartments. You know, there's a moratorium yeah. on rentals, but it's up to the individual banks and lenders on mortgages. If there's any mm -hmm. kind of leniency or forgiveness with mortgages uh, on home ownership. So that's mm -hmm. something that I think a lot of people are now really, really going to, you know, respond to. That's something that will resonate heavily with them. And yeah. to, to see Jamal still tirelessly working with the My Block, My Hood, My City group and going forward and even some of the kids who graduated and he's what, he driving them to the new campuses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to South Carolina and to St. Louis, yeah. It's, uh, this is, as you mentioned, this is one of the purest examples of altruism that mm -hmm. I've seen in a long time. And it is, it's very refreshing, it's very welcoming to see somebody like Jamal, to see the lens on him. Uh, and you, you keep the tone of this documentary light, even when, when situations get grim. And I think that really, you really followed Jamal's lead as to his emotional tone. Um... Because even yeah. when times were dark, he did not go dark in his approach to life. And you mirror that yeah, with yeah. the film. He, he, he's uh, Jamal's an optimist at, you know, at the like core of his being. I mean, you know, if something doesn't work out, um, you know, the next thing will. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a it's kind of amazing because it's certainly not the way that I view the world. <laughs> um, but uh, but you know there's always something bigger and better and next up for Jamal and and you know all of those things revolve around the community and and giving back and 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 all that amazing stuff. But he he really is an optimist and you know even when he felt at his worst, he still found a way to get up in the morning and and make change. Mm-hmm. And unlike some of us, he even gets up in the morning, he takes a shower and puts on clean clothes while the rest of us, <laughs> we've become slugs. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not actually sure that Jamal sleeps. I mean, you know, I'm I would getting get that calls and emails and texts at 2 a.m. So I, I'm, I was kind of getting that impression watching the documentary that yeah. he is, he's like the Energizer Bunny. 
He yeah. just keeps going and going and going. And an idea comes into his head and he wants to act on it right then. Yeah. He wants yeah. to get the ball There's, rolling. It's hard to, keep, hard to keep up with a person like that. You know, how is, when you have a subject like Jamal, how is this for you as a filmmaker? Because you've got to be ready to shoot on the fly. How did you decide, you know, what footage, when would be appropriate times to follow him around with a camera? Obviously, you don't have a camera on him 24-7. Um, mm -hmm. Because as, as, you, as you said, he probably isn't sleeping. Therefore, you yeah. wouldn't even have dead footage. Uh, so how is this for you as a director, as a filmmaker? In terms of deciding when you're going to shoot something, when you're not, do you get heads up? And then once you start accumulating and figure out what direction this story is going, when you start in the editing process. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wish there was an easy answer to that because it would have helped me a lot <laughs> four years ago. Um, we made this film on you know, not just a low budget. We made it on no budget. Mm. So in terms of what we were filming, it's really just doing the best we could. Um, we were all working full-time jobs at the same time as making this film. Um, I had a baby in the middle of making it. So that, you know, added another wrinkle of difficulty. Um, but as much as we could, you know, he would give us heads up to things that he was doing and we would schedule you know, just days to go follow him around and do whatever he needs to do. And, and um, you know, we just kind of filmed until we felt like we had something. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's, you know, what you have to do in, in the case like this um, when you're shooting like a verite-style documentary. Um, you got to wait for the story to come to you. Um, and so we got to the point where we felt like we had something, you know, we had enough conflict and enough resolution to, to make a film, um, but we certainly didn't go into the edit thinking like this is only going to be a year in his life. Mm -hmm. um, that was really, that was really the credit to our editor on that, um, Derek, yeah. who kind of had the vision to see that like this is the most interesting part. Um, and it's hard because you have there's some things that didn't make it into the film that I just love, but you know you gotta you have to focus. You have to narrow your focus. Mm -hmm. Now, so. you had this relatively done in 2019, but you didn't have pitch, picture lock and, and anything completely finished until the until 2020, in the middle of the pandemic mm -hmm. and the lockdown. Mm -hmm. How did that? How did the? How did COVID? How did lockdown impact you as a filmmaker I, in getting this done? Yeah. <laughs> It was uh, it was different. Um, I was actually scheduled to be in L.A. to be working with the editor, um, like an intense uh, week long, never leave the edit suite kind of kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The week that everything shut down, the week that like L.A. shut down, uh... everyone closed, you know, their offices. So we switched to a fully, um, you know, virtual. Uh, post-production process. I mean, all of our post-production was going on in LA with, with some rock, paper, scissors. And, and, you know, we were all here in Chicago. So we did the, we got to picture lock. We did the final edit. We did um, color virtually. We did, um, you know, I did, uh, I did sound with uh, sound and, and score virtually with um, noise floor here in Chicago. So even being in the same city, we just, we couldn't be together. Mm -hmm. So, it was hard, and it probably extended the process by a few months at least. Um, but you make do with what you got, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and speaking of your score and your sound, something that's interesting with your structure here, you don't have a voiceover telling us what's happening or what's going mm -hmm. to happen. It's very verite. It's very natural. It's very much a day in the life. Yeah. Uh, and that is it's that's a welcome thing when you're watching a documentary, because you as a filmmaker, you aren't putting preconceived notions in anybody's head. You're just watching things. We're watching something unfold as you watched it unfold. And we're not being directed. Um, yeah. And I, and that, I really that like that. Um, because, you know, part of what I wanted people to take away from this film 
is that Jamal is not a superhero. Um, you know, here in Chicago, he's a he's a high-profile figure at this point, mm-hmm. um, and he seems to be everywhere all the time, and he seems to have unlimited funding, and, you know, but he he does often say, you know, I'm the most high-profile poor person in Chicago. Um, you know, everything that he's able to do, he hustles for. And, you know, you come to find in the film that, you know, he was funding most of the organization through his mortgage payment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing his real life, seeing what it took to actually do the work that he was doing was really important to us because ideally, you know, the viewer sees that and says, okay, well, how can I lift some of this guy's burden? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, your score... It's a very light, you have a very light touch with your score mm-hmm. with this documentary. You know, it's, it's just there. It's almost as refreshing as like a spring breeze. <laughs> uh, it, it, because it is, it's so light. It doesn't get heavy. It doesn't get dark. It doesn't overpower. It lets the conversations that are being captured, uh, in real time unfold naturally without that predisposition again to a specific emotion. Was it difficult to come up with, to find scoring that would work with this? Well, you know, the score is original. It was done by um, Devin Delaney and we went through several iterations, but we, you know, my first notes to him were that I thought, um, you know, that the that the drama in this film kind of speaks for itself. Like, it doesn't need that added, you know, that added boost um, to guide the viewer's emotions. You know, when Jamal talks about being homeless as a kid um, and losing his childhood, like, yeah. you don't need a lot of score to make that moment feel emotional. You can see it. You can hear it in his voice. So we always knew that we wanted to have that kind of light touch and, and, and be subtle. Um, and I think that's harder in a lot of cases for a composer um, to not guide the, the viewer's emotions as much. Um, but he did a great job. And, and I think like that's I think, you know, that that lightness that you feel um, is a is a testament to like, you know, him really nailing my vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it is one of the most complimentary scores for a, a documentary that I've heard in quite a while um, because it does keep it, it's very light. And again, yeah. just like the tone, the visual tonal bandwidth, the emotional tonal bandwidth, just like the tone of the film as a whole that mirrors Jamal and his positivity and upbeat nature, so does the score. Um, you, yeah, you really, that's really nice. He'll be, he'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> you really did an amazing job with the cohesiveness of your tone on this documentary. Everything, it, it just melds and interlocks so perfectly. So perfectly, Thank Jason. You. Yeah. you know, how was, how has, because obviously... You, you have independent films like this, low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget films. Yeah. You want to get it out in release. You want to get it out into festivals first. Typically, you like to go on the fest circuit. You like to be there, have your Q&As, get public response. And we're on mm-hmm. a lockdown, and there's no live festivals. Yeah. How have you approached the quote-unquote festival circuit and how did you end up at one of my fave fests, Slam Dance? Well, I mean, it, it's hard. I mean, we're all kind of like, you know, no one has the answer. No one really knows what the what the right thing to do is. Is it, you know, just apply and, and pay those fees like you normally would? Um, is it wait until maybe we can open up during the summer? Um, but we knew that we, you know, wanted to shoot for one of the early big festivals. Mm-hmm. And... You know, slam dance. I mean, it's a, it's amazing what they've done. Like, you get the entire festival for ten bucks, yep. and on top of that, they're paying screening fees to all the filmmakers. I mean, they really are a filmmaker first festival. Wow! Um, and so, yeah. 
so we really wanted to we really wanted to screen at slam dance and um you know you just have to find and and not that like you can even you just have to hope that there are some advocates for your film in the you know in the programmers department and you know we found out that we were um we found out that we were one of the like the finalists and then i got a call that we had been selected and i was told that we were one of eight out of over 350 submissions and that's just kind of like a mind-blowing number um oh. and to think that like the audience is the the potential audience is so much larger for this best this online festival than it would be if we were just in park yeah. city i think that totally makes up for all the opportunities that we're personally losing you know to to see an audience and schmooze and, you know, get some free beers and, and things like that. I mean, just the, the size of the potential audience is incredible. And see, and that is so refreshing for me to hear that uh, come from you as a filmmaker, Jason, uh, because for so many people, it's all about, oh, we want to go to the parties. We want to go. We want that. Mm-hmm. But you just said you just nailed it. The amount of people the number of people that this film can now be exposed to, will be exposed to, um, yeah. is so far exceeds people would, that would just be in Park City yeah. for the festival. And yeah. that's what it's about, is getting people to see your film. It's not about the parties. Yeah, they're nice, <laughs> but you don't make a film for a party. Right. Okay, at least right. most filmmakers that, that I know and have known over the past 40 some years, they don't make a film for a party. <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't spend 4 years not getting paid to make a film for a party. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, why do you why are you a filmmaker, Jason? What is it that inspired you to become a filmmaker and that spurs you on now? I uh, I always knew I wanted to do something like this. Um, I went to film school for undergrad, and um, I had a had a really great experience. Um, and I knew I wanted to make documentaries after the first time I saw Hoop Dreams, which is you know I argue the greatest documentary of all time. <laughs> but it was it was personal for me because it's set in Chicago, but it's set in a part of Chicago that I. Um, did not interact with at all. And when I saw the lives of these two kids, um, and they were so close to me, like geographically so close to where I lived, but so different in every conceivable way, I thought, like, how could I have missed this? If this is happening five miles away from me, what's happening 5,000? And you don't necessarily have to make movies on the other, make documentaries on the other side of the planet to discover something amazing. Um, but it's just like it, my world opened up and documentary was the, the medium that helped me get there. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So where do you see yourself going after this screening of A Tiny Ripple of Hope? Will there be more yeah. festivals? Will we go straight into distribution? Will you be making more documentaries? Inquiring <laughs> minds want to know, Jason. Yeah. Uh, well, we're hoping that uh, that we have some other festivals. So, um, you know, after after we get some nice buzz, hopefully out of Slam Dance, more people can see it. We signed on with uh, XYZ, um, who makes amazing films and reps amazing films, and they're trying to uh, help us sell it, which is great. Um, I would love to get it on to like HBO um, and reach as large an audience as possible. That would be that would be really great. And um, you know, yeah, we're we're going to keep making films. My my two partners and I, Teddy Wackles and Nick Jenkins, um, and I, and we've got a really exciting project that we're pitching right now and and is getting a lot of uh, traction. I can't say anything about it, um, but it's uh, it's really cool. It's not necessarily that similar to the subject matter of a tiny ripple of hope but it's, it's going to be fun well now a question for you with a documentary because we are still in in many parts of the country still uh, to a large degree on mm-hmm. lockdown and everywhere yeah. you especially in filmmaking you've got all the pp protocols that are now in yeah. place 
have you considered how that's going to impact you as a documentary filmmaker? Or will, will that effect be minimal for your style of filmmaking? I mean, I think you have to, you have to consider it. Um, everything takes a little bit longer. Everything costs a little bit more. Um, and so maybe, you know, you work a little bit harder on the research and the, and the storytelling ahead of time. Um, instead of just going out and filming and trying to, you know, put together your story in post, you, um, you spend a little bit more time doing the stuff that doesn't require you to be interacting with strangers out, out in the field. Um, but I'm really, really hoping that, um, you know, by this late summer, early mm-hmm. fall, we're, we're back to some semblance of normalcy in terms of being able to be around, you know, strangers without being concerned that they're going to give you a, a, a horrible virus. Well, and the other consideration, especially for indie filmmakers, for low-budget, no-budget, micro-budget films, it's mm-hmm. not like Jurassic World, Dominion, where yeah, yeah you yeah. can you can add fifty sixty million dollars for PPE into your budget, and yeah, that's yeah. okay. You're you're going to get it back, even if you're not in a theater. You're going to get that back with the nineteen ninety nine on <laughs> immediate VOD right. release. Uh, right. But how does something like that impact a filmmaker with no to minimal budget like yourself? Because you're still going to have to be buying and including PPE costs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when you're making films the way we made A Tiny Ripple of Hope, like, you don't even think about it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's um, coming out of your life budget. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's no, there was no um, specifically set budget for a day of shooting, and we said, hey, we've got to stop because we hit our, we had our limit for today. I mean, you just, you just do it. I mean, if it's, if it's what you want to be doing, if it's the film you want to be making, um, you just find a way to make it work. That's, that's, there's not a more really elegant answer to low budget filmmaking. It just means you pick up an extra box of PPE masks at the store, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ex- yeah, exactly. An extra, an extra jar of wipes and an extra, an extra box of masks. Oh yeah, it helps that my stepmom's a that my stepmom is a nurse. So oh, okay. She's got, the, she's got the mask hookup. So. so you're all set. If you have to shoot, and masks are still required, oh, you're set. I don't have to worry about you. You're you're gonna be, you're you're gonna be fine <laughs> yeah. then. Ah, oh. yeah. Jason, unfortunately, we're all out of time. This has been a joy talking to you about a tiny ripple of hope. Job well done. Now you're in the are you are you in the documentary competition with Slam Dance. Yes. Now when will we know the winners? The winners, I believe the jury and the um audience audience vote are announced Thursday evening. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have my eye out on you and and a few <laughs> other narratives. Um, with the with this year's Slam Dance Fest. Oh, Jason, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back on the show again when you can talk. I would love to when you can talk about your next project. And absolutely. In the meantime, everybody can pay their ten bucks. They can watch a couple hundred films at Slam Dance Film Festival through the twenty fifth. And yes. a tiny ripple of hope is one of them. Jason, thank you, thank you. And please relay my congratulations to your whole team on this one. I will. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Jason Polavoy talking about a tiny ripple of hope. And yes, you can see it now. Stream it. Slam Dance Film Festival. $10. It blew my mind the other week. When we had the filmmakers for Anatomy of Wings on, and it was, and I had found out this year for Virtual Slam Dance, ten dollars, and you can see every film festival in the fest. It's phenomenal, and yes, audience awards. You can vote online for your picks of the festival, for awards for these wonderful filmmakers. So, 
get thee to a computer, start streaming some slam dance films. Then while you're online or go to your TV with your VOD and watch Willie's Wonderland. Um, another wonderful show. Thank you to my wonderful guests. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I know you're listening today. Uh, Kevin Lewis, Willie's Wonderland. Next week, we've got some return filmmakers coming back. Uh, they were here in March of 2019, almost two years ago exactly, with a film that was on the festival circuit. It now has distribution and it's getting released. So we're going to get to talk with the filmmakers of Lupe next week and find out about their journey into distribution during the time of COVID. So that is all the time we have. Of course, we ran over. We always run over. Uh, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.